Welcome to A New Republic, an oral history of the Indian Constitution. Episode 11, Simon Says. Once again, thanks to recent rulings by the Supreme Court of India, there's been some debate about the nature of India's constitution, the history of the Indian Penal Code, and the roles that are played by institutions such as the Supreme Court and the Indian Parliament. People have been talking about what each institution does, which one leads, which one follows, which one prescribes, which one proscribes, and so on. Now, personally, from the perspective of this podcast, I think these debates tell us two things. First of all, they tell us how documents and institutions, such as the Penal Code and the Constitution, remain central to the life of the Republic. In a way, it is amazing that in 2013, we still so routinely refer to documents that were drafted by people, not one of whom remain alive today. It's an indication of of how versatile these documents were. Secondly, the debate also tells us that many, many educated people, including journalists, commentators, and politicians, still struggle to completely grasp the concept of a constitution and how the ideas held in the constitution are realized in the daily life of our republic. In some ways, I feel the Constitution of India has become a realm of lawyers and specialists, which I think is a pity. Because when there are so many gatekeepers for such a fundamental document, it kind of feels like a religious text that only a certain priestly class is allowed to interpret. So perhaps there is a need for much greater public awareness of the ideas enshrined, so to speak, in the Indian Constitution. What I mean to say is, we need many more podcasts, we need many more books, we need many more documentaries that can really support us when we're kind of entangled in these debates. Anyway, enough of um, idle musing and back to the task at hand. This is the 11th episode of A New Republic. In the first eight episodes, we covered the history of the Indian constitution leading up to the end of the First World War. We then briefly digressed with a two-episode look at Gandhian constitutionalism. We now return to our main track. The time is now the late 1920s. The martial miseries of the First World War have been somewhat forgotten, but much of the world will soon be plunged into the throes of a brutal economic crisis. Liaquat Ahmad's book, The Lords of Finance, is a brilliant history of the bad economics, especially central banking, of this period that led to the Great Depression. So I'm not going to cover any of that economic story here. In England, meanwhile, a legislative time bomb is slowly ticking away. As you may recall, in 1919, the British government passed a new Government of India Act that established the foundations of a certain federal structure for Indian government. Indian government was divided into a diarchy with powers split between the centre and the provinces. But forget all that. Forget the details of the Government of India Act of 1919. Forget everything I told you in previous episodes. Just remember this. Remember that in 1919, many Indians considered this to be a great betrayal. In 1919, the Indian nationalist movement, manned largely by educated urban elites, were hoping to secure some form of independence. Now, different people, different leaders sought different things. A few sought outright independence, while others, uh, who were also very ardent nationalists, would have been very happy to see India become a dominion within the empire in the fashion of Australia or Canada. All of them hoped, irrespective of what their personal definition of freedom was, all of them hoped that India's massive contribution to the First World War 
both in the form of cash and manpower, would hasten this process of independence. Unfortunately, it did not. So for these nationalists, the Government of India Act of 1919 was a complete betrayal, a stab in the back. This is a term that keeps coming up in literature over and over again, that the Government of India Act of 1919 was a stab in the back. But a stab in the back that completely changed the Indian freedom struggle and paved the way for not just the next two decades of the independence struggle, but also the history of the Republic of India after it became a free nation. Now, one caveat. It is always very risky to build chains of causality from history textbooks. This assumes that historical things happen with a certain concrete logic, that one thing always leads to another. This is almost never the case in reality. History only seems to make perfect sense in hindsight. But right now, right now, I can't even tell you who will form the next state government in Delhi. But five years from now, it'll all make perfect sense. I will be able to fit in the Ahmadmi Party movement in Delhi into a perfect political science model quite smoothly. But right now, I can tell you nothing. Similarly, even though I will tell this story in this podcast with a linear narrative, do remember that there was nothing particularly inevitable about it. Things could have drastically panned out in different ways. But let's stick to a linear narrative so that we don't get confused with various quantum projections of what could have happened. So what comes next in my linear narrative? In 1919, even as the British government imposed an unpopular new Government of India Act, it promised Indian leaders one thing. It promised to review the arrangements in 10 years' time. Now, five years later, five years after the Act, in November 1924, the Right Honourable Frederick Edwin Smith, the first Earl of Birkenhead, took over as the Secretary of State for India. Birkenhead's excellent Wikipedia profile is one of the most entertaining things you will read anywhere. It is certainly one of the most entertaining biographies of anybody in the long history of India's constitution. And as you might expect from a man who was one of Winston Churchill's best friends, Birkenhead was a great lawyer, a witty speaker, and a larger-than-life politician who always seems to have been drunk, almost continuously. He lived his whole life in um, intoxicated. And prior to his posting as the Secretary of State, his strongest link with India seems to have been his service with the Indian Corps during the First World War. After the war, Birkenhead co-authored a book on the Corps of Indians who fought in France. Now, again, after the war in 1919, Birkenhead was first made a peer, elevated to the House of Lords, and then appointed as the Lord Chancellor. A few months later, the Jallianwala Bagh massacre took place in Amritsar, and Birkenhead was deeply involved in the debates that ensued in the Parliament in London. Birkenhead's outrage at the massacre is often quoted. On 19 July 1920, he said, On the face of it, such a course of conduct, I think, cannot be defended. This has never, so far as my knowledge of the history of this empire extends, been approached in all our long, anxious and entirely honourable dealings with native populations. Birkenhead condemned his Tory colleagues for praising General Dyer as a hero, when the same kind of conduct by a British officer in Canada or Scotland, he said, would have led to widespread outrage. It is important, however, not to overplay these quotes. Birkenhead, like his friend Churchill, was a complete imperialist. The Oxford Dictionary of National Biography calls him an ignorant and prejudiced Secretary of State. So his complaint pertaining to uh, the massacre was that a British officer had acted in a way not becoming of the great empire. His complaint was not so much that this was some kind of outrage that discredits colonialism itself. Indeed, 
Later, Birkenhead's views on India may have also helped shape Churchill's own well-known views on India and Indians. Richard Toy, in his book Churchill's Empire, explains how Birkenhead's own cynical views on dividing and ruling the Hindu and Muslim populations may have influenced Churchill afterwards. It is thus perhaps with an idea of benevolent imperialism that Birkenhead assumes the post of Secretary of State for India in 1924. However, immediately, he embarks on the promise of 1919, a new constitutional review to be done in 10 years by 1929. On the 24th of November 1927, after three years of personal discussions, meetings and investigation, Birkenhead outlined his plans to the House of Lords. As promised in the Government of India Act of 1919, a new parliamentary commission was to be formed. Birkenhead said, The motion which I have to move is that this House concurs in the submission to His Majesty of the names of the following persons, namely Sir John Simon, Viscount Burnham, Lord Strathcona and Mount Royal, Mr. Cadogan, Mr. Walsh, Colonel Lane Fox and Major Attlee to act as a commission for the purpose of Section 84A of the Government of India Act. Now, I read out a portion from the official records, from the Hansard records of the House of Lords. So what does the Section 84A um, of the Government of India Act say? It's a little bit unwieldy, but I'll still read this bit out. The persons whose names are so submitted, if approved by His Majesty, shall be a commission for the purpose of inquiring into the working of the system of government, the growth of education, and the development of representative institutions in British India and matters connected therewith, and the commission shall report as to whether and to what extent it is desirable to establish the principle of responsible government or to extend, modify, or restrict the degree of responsible government then existing therein, including the question whether the establishment of second chambers of the local legislatures is or is not desirable. So I'll give you a few moments to uh, catch your breath. Now, all of this sounds very vague because it was precisely meant to be extremely vague. Right from the moment this section was written into the Act, the point of this commission was to review the whole idea of British India, from top to bottom, side to side, and from every conceivable angle. So by leaving the mandate for this parliamentary commission so open, later the British could look at almost every element of um, the British Raj. Now technically, the new body that uh, Birkin had announced was called the British Statutory Commission or the Indian Statutory Commission. But almost immediately, it began being referred to as the Simon Commission after the chairman Sir John Simon. So what were the expectations on both sides of the British-India divide from this legislative review. Now, let me guess what you're thinking. You're thinking that it's it's kind of a tug of war. So on the one hand, the Indian nationalists want as much more reform as they can get, while the British government want to yield as little as they can possibly get away with. If you're thinking that way, you're wrong. That wasn't exactly the situation. In fact, the difference in positions was even starker. The conservative government in Britain, including people like Birkenhead, did not just want to maintain status quo with the Government of India Act of 1919. Many of them actually wanted to roll back many of these reforms. They felt that too much had been given away to the Indians by previous liberal governments. So perhaps many of them hoped that the Simon Commission would come back from India and recommend further tightening and not loosening of Indian self-government. In India, on the other hand, there was an insatiable thirst for reform. In fact, by my reckoning, I think in all the history of British India that came after the war of 1857, 
This would mark the high point of animosity between uh, the Indian freedom struggle and the British government. It also marks the beginning of uh, truly national mobilization of the freedom struggle. Now, there are many factors for this. There is the betrayal of 1919, obviously. There are events such as the Jallianwala Bagh massacre, the arrival of Gandhi on the scene, and also the unprecedented scaling up of the nationalist movement. By this point, the nationalist movement was beginning to bloom into a proper pan-India idea. It was no longer the purview of a small educated elite. Or to put it in another way, the Indian nationalist movement now had both masses of eager foot soldiers, but also defiant educated generals leading them into battle, equipped with a quite a fine grasp of government and legislation. Slowly, something that was unthinkable to the British was beginning to happen. India was producing leaders who were not only popular, but also capable of writing their own constitutions. In fact, by this stage, there is so much tension in India that a few years before the Simon Commission, in 1924, a Madiman committee was appointed by the colonial government in India to placate leaders such as Motilal Nehru. That's M-U-D-D-I-M-A-N, Madiman Committee. The Madiman Committee ended in a shambles. Out of nine, the four Indian members, Shiva Swami Iyer, Dr. R.P. Paranjpe, Tej Bahadur Sapru, and Muhammad Ali Jinnah all said that reforms were essential. A majority of the five, the remaining five members, however, conveniently said that everything was tip-top with the Act of 1919 and all problems were to be expected and would go away automatically. The Madiman Committee report was tabled in India in 1925 and promptly ignored by everybody. All hopes, therefore, now depended on the Simon Commission. However, it was a disaster right from the start. Why? Because it didn't have a single Indian member. Birkenhead defended his decision to stuff the commission only with British members by saying that India was impossible to represent. If you had a Hindu member, you needed a Muslim one. But then who would represent the untouchables and tribals? So better to have none at all rather than open an Indian Pandora's box of troubles. It was a clever tactic because if the Indians couldn't be trusted to work together on a small commission, where does the issue of Indian self-government and an Indian constitution even come into the picture? The reaction that the Simon Commission received in India is well known to anybody who is subject to social sciences education in an Indian school. The nationalist movement hounded the commission members wherever they went. Simon Goback, and alternately Goback Simon, became the rallying cry for thousands of protesters the moment members landed in India in February 1928. On 30th October, the commission visited Lahore and was met by the usual protests. In the ensuing violence, prominent Congress leader Lala Lajpat Rai was fatally injured. He died less than a month later. This particular atrocity set in motion a sequence of events that culminated in the execution of Bhagat Singh and two other legendary Indian freedom fighters in March 1931. Now, in a meaningless attempt to assuage Indian opposition, the British government created an all-India committee for cooperation with the Simon Commission. Almost all major nationalists immediately boycotted this. It was finally made up of some prominent Indians who I suspect were particularly friendly with the British. This included people like C. Shankaran Nair, who in 1922 wrote a book titled Gandhi and Anarchy, the kind of title which would be banned on the spot if anyone tried to write something like it um, today. 
Now, this was, like I said before, undoubtedly a period of extreme hostility and animosity. But in many ways, it was also the storm before the calm. There was no way this was obvious to the British or Indians at that time, but a prolonged endgame to the question of Indian independence was now about to start. And as we have seen so many times before in this story, the catalyst for this change is an event in London and not one in India. In 1929, the Conservative government in London is replaced by Ramsay MacDonald's Labour Party government. This administration is now much more open to the idea of giving India dominion status within the empire, which would place it more or less at par with Canada or Australia. Slowly, the right noises were now emanating from London. So what happens of the wretched Simon Commission? As you may have realized, the commission had very few friends left. Indians obviously didn't care for it, and the government that organized it was no longer in power in London. And when the two-volume Simon report came out in the summer of 1930, it was almost binned immediately. Indians, like I said, rejected it out of hand, and the British found no point in persisting with a very, very bad idea that had been very, very bad from the moment it had been suggested. Instead, London realized that they needed to start afresh. They needed to do something to move things forward, but without pissing off so many Indians. And that fresh start is known as the famous Roundtable Conferences of 1931 to 1933. These conferences culminated in the Government of India Act of 1935, the last such document before independent India drew up its own constitution. So now you may be asking yourself, what is the point of the Simon Commission? Why is it such a big deal if it led to nothing except a lot of wasted time and thousands of outraged Indians? Very, very good question. See, the Simon Commission's most important outcome was actually to strengthen the Indian nationalist movement and give its leaders a national stage and cause. And most importantly, to cement the Indian National Congress at the centre of Indian public life. Without the Simon Commission and the protests that followed it, and even if we account for Gandhi's presence, the Congress may not have become this big, huge political behemoth, this kind of political monster that it later became. And the history of not just British India, but even independent India may have become very different indeed. Another outcome of this was the participation of Clement Attlee as a member of the commission. When India finally won freedom, Attlee was the British Prime Minister. Perhaps he reached into his experience during his visits to India as part of the Simon Commission. Finally, the outrage of the Simon Commission forced the authorship of an interesting document. In May 1928, after an all-party conference in India, a committee was drawn up with Motila Nehru as chairman. This committee, that included leaders such as Netaji Bose, Tej Bahadur Sapru and G.R. Pradhan, would prepare their own report on Indian constitution. This would go down in history as the Nehru Report. The, the funny thing, the greatest irony in all this, is that despite the absence of any Indian involvement, the Simon Report was actually not all that bad. On some matters of local government and federal structure, I think it was perhaps even more liberal than the Ultimate Government of India Act of 1935. But of course, all this is only clear in hindsight. At the time, the Simon Commission was a bad move that backfired on the British and really pissed off India. Now, next time, in the next episode of this podcast, I'd like to spend some time looking at the Nehru report that I briefly mentioned earlier. I'd like to look at its constitutional qualities 
and also how it eventually drove a wedge between Hindus and Muslims that was so deep that it led to partition in 1947. Till then, goodbye and take care.